As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. There's a car going westbound, pushing a freight boat on a red, on the escape, black male, I couldn't stop it. When lives are on the line, we have multiple casualties, gas communication is critical. Alert all the hospitals! But a Fox 6 investigation finds a communication breakdown may have led to the release of Daryl Brooks just five days before the Waukesha Christmas Parade. There seems to be a lot of breakdowns everywhere. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, January 13th. And we are doing something this week that we've never done before on Open Record. We are breaking news we have yet to bring to either television or our digital platforms. So we're going to break down how miscommunication led to a court decision in Waukesha allowing Daryl Brooks to go free just days before the Waukesha Christmas Parade. But before we get to that, Brian, this is probably a good time to remind our listeners about what happened and what's been reported about this case so far. So this goes back to November 21st, the week of Thanksgiving. It was Sunday before Thanksgiving, and I think so many of us now remember hearing about the the tragedy that was taking place in Waukesha, this Christmas parade, the Christmas season was here, and it was supposed to be obviously a joyous occasion for families, and then this SUV goes plowing through the parade route, uh, mowing down people, both adults and children. In the end, six people were killed, 61 injured, and obviously an entire community and and really metro area was traumatized. Now, we know since then, word has come out that Daryl Brooks had just been released days before that on a $1,000 bail for attempting to run over his ex-girlfriend in a domestic dispute. And when he did that, he was already out on $500 bail for shooting a gun at his nephew. So this is someone with uh, a history of violent offenses, at least charges, and, and was released on what the DA called an inappropriately low bail. And since then, there have been calls for John Chisholm, the Milwaukee County DA's resignation or removal. In fact, one citizen filed a request for removal with Governor Tony Evers. Lawmakers are jumping in now. They are already working to reform the bail system that ultimately allowed Daryl Brooks to go free just before this parade tragedy. So that's the setting for all of this. And and there's been so much focus on that $1,000 bail and on the DA's decision, uh, Amanda. But today we're going to talk about another decision that was made that uh, obviously had a big impact on what happened. And how did that decision get on your radar? Well, so obviously when this first happened, the first thing we did was go and look at the criminal history of Daryl Brooks. And you see that he's got a lot of contacts with the criminal justice system, both in Milwaukee County and in Waukesha County and, in fact, in other states. Um, What we noticed was while he was released on bail in Milwaukee County, 
the most recent case that he had in Wisconsin, the most recent hearing was actually in Waukesha on November 16th. It was a paternity case that dates all the way back to 2003. So this case is 18 at the time, 18 years old, now 19 years old. And it's uh, a case that in which he was ordered to pay child support. And over the years, he has accrued a tremendous amount of unpaid child support. In fact, hasn't made a payment in uh, probably more than a year at this point. So he last paid, I think maybe it was uh, prior, to, well, certainly prior to March of 2021. We know that he's accrued more than $40,000 in unpaid child support. And on November 16th, there was a hearing where the state of Wisconsin's child support agency was asking to have him thrown in jail for 120 days uh, because he hadn't made these payments. The judge had the opportunity at that time to put him in jail and elected not to. And if he had been in jail, then, I mean, presumably what happened at the Waukesha Christmas parade doesn't happen, right? Because he's not able to go anywhere. Absolutely. And that's the thing. You look at this. It's not as though a family court judge handling a paternity case is somehow responsible for what happened in Waukesha or should have known that such a tragedy was coming. This wasn't a criminal court hearing. However, this was certainly an opportunity where if you look at the history of the case, Daryl Brooks very well could have and, and many would say should have been jailed because the 120 day jail sentence had actually been issued all the way back in March of 2021 and then stayed by the court commissioner at the time to give him a chance to prove that he could start making payments on a regular basis. Instead, he didn't make a single payment, not one in that time period. So there was a 120-day jail sentence issued for Brooks, stayed to give him an extra chance to prove he could do what he was supposed to do. He failed to do it completely, and here he was in court again and the state was saying, OK, now you've got to send him to jail for that 120 days. But Brooks came up with an explanation or I think at this point you would say an excuse. And the explanation was that he'd actually been in jail that whole time in Georgia on some other charge. But he had no evidence of that. There was no proof. And his own attorney did not have evidence or proof of his incarceration in another state. That would have been his explanation for why he couldn't pay. Hey, I was in jail somewhere else. And with his criminal history, I suppose that's believable. What the judge decided to do was, okay, let's wait another month and I'll get you to come back. And if you can prove you were in jail, then I will not Im institute this jail sentence. Um, and then you need to start paying. So he set it for a review date in December and released him. But there was another factor that influenced the judge's decision to release him and not impose the jail sentence on that day. And that's the one that we're going to focus on here today. So what happened there? Because we've already used the word miscommunication a lot. And it seems like if there's ever a time to use that word, now's the time. So when, when the court commissioner, David Herring in Waukesha, is deciding, should I impose this 120-day jail sentence today? I mean, he's already had this hanging over his head. He didn't make a single payment. He's telling us he was in jail, but there's no evidence of that. What other factors might weigh into that decision? If you look back, there is a transcript of that hearing that is in the court file. And I read through that transcript. And what jumped out at me is at one point, the judge asks Daryl Brooks if, in fact, he, he sees that he had $1,000 bail in Milwaukee County on the case for attempting to run over his ex-girlfriend. And he asks him, 
are you still on a bail, a $1,000 bail in Milwaukee County, that you are unable to pay? And Brooks answers, yes, sir. The attorney for the state of Wisconsin raises doubts about that, and he says, look, he's in the Waukesha County jail today. He was just transferred from Milwaukee County today. I don't think they would transfer him here if he was still on a hold in Milwaukee County. That doesn't really make any sense. And the court commissioner replies, I can confirm for you that the bail is still in effect. Those aren't the exact words, but essentially he says, I can confirm that he is still under that $1,000 bail in Milwaukee County. What we don't know from that transcript is what made the judge so sure that he was in fact still under a bail hold in Milwaukee County. What was he relying on other than Brooks's own word, which you can imagine is not particularly reliable with his own history. So if he wasn't just relying on on the uh, respondent's word, then what convinced him that he was? Because we now know that's not true. He was not still on a hold in Milwaukee County. He had actually bailed out five days earlier. So we're in a situation where this was an opportunity for Daryl Brooks to be in jail and not out in the public before this Waukesha Christmas parade tragedy. A judge makes a decision to not put him in jail and... Presumably, one factor is this judge's belief that he's already going to be in jail somewhere else, so he doesn't have to make that decision. What's the bigger issue here? Because this sounds like a problem if we are in a position where judges are not getting correct information. Well, and and that's where we go to how it's communicated that someone is bailed out of jail. And if you look at Milwaukee County, He bailed out, or his mother actually paid his bail on November 11th. But Waukesha still had a warrant for his arrest, and Milwaukee County reached out to, the Sheriff's Department reached out to Waukesha Sheriff's Department and said, hey, there's this warrant. Do you want us to hold him or release him? And Waukesha said, hang on to him. We want him back here on the 16th. So they kept him in jail in Milwaukee, and on the 16th, Waukesha County Sheriff's Department came to get him and transport him to or to Waukesha County Jail, where he would be there for this hearing. And on the 16th, that is the day that Brooks signed out of his bond. He signed out of jail in Milwaukee County, signed his bail form. He just did it this morning. There's video that the Sheriff's Department has sent to Fox 6 News to show that just that morning, Brooks had signed his bail sheet and left Milwaukee County. He goes to the jail in Waukesha County. He appears by Zoom for this hearing, and the judge just hours later asks him, are you still in Milwaukee County on bail, unable to pay that bail? And he says, yes, sir. So we know Brooks blatantly lies about not being able to get out of Milwaukee County. The question is, why wasn't it communicated to Waukesha that he had bailed out of jail? The sheriff's department knew it because they came to get him. Why didn't the court commissioner know that, and what did he rely on? And we can only speculate at this point But one thing we know is that online court records did not reflect the bail payment or the fact that he had bailed out until three days after the Waukesha hearing, eight days after bail was paid. It was November 19th when there's an entry in the court record online on CCAP, as many people know it, where it says that bond has been posted. And there is an indication, a notation under that that says the actual posting date was November 11th. Now, typically, that kind of a lag wouldn't have any significant effect on anyone. But in this case, it raises the question of, did the court commissioner in Waukesha just check CCAP? And if he did on the 16th, 
he wouldn't have seen any notation that Bond had been paid, nor that he had signed out of jail and was released. So if the failure to update CCAP in a timely fashion is what he relied on, well, then that may have well played into the decision not to jail Daryl Brooks. And again, I want to be clear, it's not the court commissioner in Waukesha's responsibility to protect the public in a paternity case necessarily. It's it's his job to make sure that the person who's due their child support is getting that child support. But if you're someone who's lost a loved one in the Waukesha parade and you know there was every reason for this judge to have jailed Daryl Brooks that day for 120 days and that it was simply a communication error that prevented it, wouldn't you look back and say, that communication error cost my loved one their life. It's a tough situation to look at. And from the general public standpoint, it's an issue if we have a bigger system that is not getting information, crucial information when it comes to making these decisions quickly and efficiently to court commissioners and judges and and the people who are making these decisions. Why is there such a delay in updating this information, especially in this day and age where so many records and communications are digital. I will say that the Milwaukee County Court System and Sheriff's Office were very responsive in wanting to talk to me about this on background. And uh, and, and as we record this on Thursday morning, the 13th, I am expecting later this morning to speak on the record with Ted Chisholm, who's the chief of staff for Milwaukee County Sheriff Ernell Lucas. Uh, but the first phone call I got was actually from John Barrett, who is the uh, Milwaukee County Clerk of Courts. And he and others were on a group phone call, and they just explained the process to me and, and what happens here. And, and, and first of all, they were very clear. Online court records are there for convenience. They are not an official record that should be relied upon, certainly not in uh, by a judge making a decision in a case. They are, they are there for the public's convenience, for parties' convenience, but they are not an official record. That said, we know a lot of people do rely on those records, and so the process is that the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Office receives payment when someone posts bail. And throughout a day, they collect all of those payments, and then they cut one single bulk check at the end of the day and send that on to, uh, after they get the proper signatures, I think it takes two signatures from people in their finance department uh, to certify the payments, and then they send them on to the Milwaukee County Courthouse. And at that point, the courthouse processes those and posts the individual payments and bail releases on CCAP. Typically, that process can take 48 to 72 hours. Depending on a weekend or other things, it could take a little bit longer. In this case, it took eight days, which I think is longer than usual. Now, part of the reason for that is, remember, we said that the bail payment was made on the 11th, but because of the hold on Brooks, they didn't have him sign his bail form until Waukesha came to get him on the 16th. So there's the first five days. Then it takes another day or two, I think it was two days, for the sheriff's office to process all of that paperwork, get it over to the courthouse, and then another two days for the courthouse to get it online. There's your eight days. It ends up being the 19th before it's posted online. The question becomes, should the court commissioner in Waukesha have relied on CCAP to make a determination, if that's what he did, to make a determination that, in fact, Brooks was still under a hold in Milwaukee County, and therefore he didn't need to impose a jail sentence at that time. I've talked to a number of people who've said, no, that's not what should happen. The judge 
should have asked a bailiff. He could have simply, with a one phone, and you heard in the intro to this, we said one phone call could have made the difference. I've been told that with one phone call, in fact, it was State Representative Cindy Duco who was pushing for bail reform, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Cindy Duco uh, said to me, one phone call to uh, the sheriff's department could have confirmed, is he still under a hold in Milwaukee County or not? Uh, one question to a bailiff who could have made a phone call right there in the courtroom could have confirmed, is he under a jail hold in Milwaukee County or not? And the transcript doesn't appear to reflect that any such question was asked or any phone call was made. It does not. In fact, in, it, with the stream of content in that transcript, it would appear that the, the, the judge had quick access to something. So we can only assume it was CCAP. And I'm making an assumption. I don't know. I have asked the court commissioner twice if he would explain what happened, how he came to the conclusion that he was still under uh, a hold in Milwaukee County when he wasn't. And I haven't gotten a response. I also asked the chief judge of the third district, which includes Waukesha County, and I've not gotten a response. So I've attempted to get that answer. We're making an assumption based on the information in front of us. And that information is we know CCAP didn't update until the 19th. And we know the judge or the court commissioner rather was convinced he was still on a hold that affected his decision based on the wording that he used. And because of that, Daryl Brooks was released. We know what happened five days later. And I'll say it for the third time. It's, I'm not saying it's the court commissioner's fault or responsibility, but we know that a miscommunication led to a decision that ultimately set a chain of events in motion that was tragic. Well, and let's say this process worked uh quicker than the eight days, right? Let's say it took even 24 hours for all of those updates to happen. That still sometimes, depending on how court proceedings play out, is not quick enough for a judge or a court commissioner to make fully informed decisions. And it still seems like a long time considering, again, we're in 2022. We're not dealing with purely paper records here. So are there any plans to change this part of the system to make sure that the people making decisions have access to the most up-to-date information in as fast and efficient of a manner as possible. I will ask that question of the chief of staff of the sheriff's office. I've gotten no response from anyone so far that indicates there are plans to change that system. Most of the answers suggest that this is the system we have and CCAP should not be relied upon as an official record, uh, that there are other more uh, accurate, timely ways for court officials and others in the criminal justice system to get that up-to-date information, um, particularly when you're talking about a, a jail hold. That is stuff that is stored in, I'm not sure the name of the system, but there, there are systems that they use to check that, that the bailiffs, that the, the sheriff's department can check quickly. Um, they know better than I do, obviously, by my stumbling around here, but they do know, and they have ways to check immediately. And, and again, a simple phone call, maybe if it takes five minutes, can make the difference between a decision uh, that that uh, is accurate or one that's based on misinformation. So, Brian, I feel like what we're talking about today naturally takes us into the topic of bail reform. And it's something we've discussed here on the podcast before. But since then, we've had a lot of new developments. So can you give us an overview of how the current system works and what people want to do about it? So currently, the the way the system works, and at least, well, the way the law is written is that bail, cash bail, is uh, available to anyone who is charged with a crime 
um, unless they're released on their own recognizance, in which case they don't pay anything. The question is the amount of bail. But the way the law is currently written, the way the Wisconsin Constitution is currently written, that cash bail can only be applied at an amount that is necessary to return a person to court, to ensure they will come back and actually appear for their court hearings. The judge or court commissioner who sets bail can consider public safety risk when setting other conditions of bail. And there are a number of other conditions that can be set from uh, the requirement that they, uh, you know, ha- take urine screens or or that they, you know, uh, be absolute, have absolute sobriety, that they not contact other individuals. But in terms of the amount of cash bail, the law says it can only be an amount necessary to bring them back to court. We know in practice that that's not necessarily what happens. We know that prosecutors and judges often will set bail. Look at Daryl Brooks. His bail was set at $5 million, and for the first five uh, homicide victims, that was a $1 million per victim, per homicide charge. Um, Is that the amount necessary to bring him back to court? Well, you could say that because the charges are so serious, he's likely to flee if he's, he's released. But it's really a reflection of the seriousness of the offense, the threat he poses to the public. So while they technically can't do what they often do, but it's sort of a wink and a nod system, and many times it's not openly discussed. So what are the current moves to change that? Because in, in a recent story you did, it was interesting. You had people on two different sides of the aisle kind of coming to the same conclusion about bail. Well, one of the problems with a system that relies on cash, uh, some people will say, is that really the the it, it reflects an ability to pay as to whether or not you can get out of jail, not how dangerous you are to the community. So if you're someone with no means at all, if you have very little money at all, a $500 bail may be enough to keep you in jail until your trial because you just can't come up with it. But if you're someone with means who commits a very serious crime or someone who maybe has a lot of friends or you have family members with money and you commit a very serious crime, you could get a $10,000 bail or a $20,000 bail and someone will post it for you and you can get out of jail anyway. So there are some who say we should be changing the system to reflect dangerousness rather than ability to pay. And there are different approaches to doing that. What's interesting right now is we have both Republicans and Democrats who are talking about bail reform, but they have a little bit of a different approach or some have. It's not necessarily a partisan divide uh, entirely, but one approach is to increase bail amounts based on safety risk. That requires a change in the state constitution because of the way it's worded now. And that's hard to do because to change the constitution, you need to pass that change through the uh, legislature in two consecutive legislative sessions. And those sessions are two years long. So this takes a minimum of two years, probably more, to get that done. And it takes a lot of political will to do it because you've got to get it done twice. Um, there are currently bills in that Republicans have filed, only Republicans, that would do something a little easier, and that is set minimum bonds for certain crimes. Um, it would be, you know, $5,000, for instance, if you have a previous bail jumping charge. It would be $10,000 if you have a previous, I believe it's a felony or a violent misdemeanor charge. Those are controversial proposals for, for some who say, you know, bail minimums take discretion away from judges, take discretion away from prosecutors. And in a lot of cases, they're not they're just going to fill up the jails in cases maybe where it's not necessary. Maybe they're not violent felonies. Maybe it's not someone who needs to be held pretrial. Um, another approach is to eliminate cash bail altogether. Illinois has done that. And that's to say there is no cash bail. No one pays cash to get out of jail. You simply assess is someone too risky to be released, then they're held. 
Are they not that risky? We let them go. And that's been controversial because there's a sense that that's really just an effort to release as many people from jail as possible, no matter what crimes they're charged with, that it's very hard to get someone held pretrial based on their risk. And so there are concerns that uh, it's just letting offenders out too easily. Behind all of this, Amanda, is one thing that's very important to point out. When someone's charged with a crime, it's different from when they are sentenced. When they're sentenced, they've been found guilty. When they're charged, they are presumed under our Constitution to be innocent. So we're talking about do we jail people who are presumed innocent until trial based upon their risk to the community from previous history and other factors. How is the elimination of cash bail playing out in Illinois? Do we have a lot of data on that? Well, I'm not familiar with what research or studies have been done. I do know that there's obviously a lot of controversy, and it really depends on who you talk to, how that's going. Some say it's been uh, a smashing success. Others say it's been responsible for the stark increase in crime we've seen in the last couple of years. Of course, you could look around the country, and there's been a stark increase in crime everywhere. There's been a stark increase in crime in Milwaukee, and we haven't changed our bail system at all. So, uh, But but I'm not going to, to dive into whether one side or the other is right. I haven't seen the data. I do think that That's research that is probably going on all over the country right now, and we're going to be hearing a lot more about that as more states move toward a system like that. One thing that's clear is there is interest right now in this issue, and we're already seeing bills that are being circulated in Madison, and we're going to see more coming very soon. There are debates that will be happening on the assembly floor potentially by the end of this month. So this topic, bail reform, is one that's going to be hot in 2022, and of course, we'll keep following it here on Open Record. It is time to go off the record. This is the part of the podcast where we get a little more casual. We have a little more fun by answering a question for which we have not prepared. So here again to ask that question is Open Records executive producer, Sarah Smith. Hi, Sarah. Cello. How's it going, guys? It's going okay this morning. Good. You know, I know we start out this uh, segment with a question in which you have not prepared. However, Brian Polson um, was kind of the impetus for this question. Oh, you're going to go with my question. I am because I have another question, but I thought this one. Um, I forgot what it was, though, so I'm, I don't know if I am prepared, so that's good. <laughs> I am definitely not prepared. I just remember we were I remember we were slacking and I said some slacking back and forth and I said something to her and, and I said that would be a great open record question, but I can't remember what it was. So this will be this will be nice. <laughs> so I jotted it down right quick. OK, the question is uh, you send a text message. And as soon as you hit send, you realize there's a typo, whether that be a misspelling, uh, you used an exclamation where you should have used a question mark, something. Do you immediately text again, fixing the typo with like sometimes like an asterisk? Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I feel like I know the answer for all of us, but I, I mean, yeah. So do you fix the typo in a text or do you just let it go? Because it doesn't drive you crazy for the rest of your life. <laughs> I, <laughs> because I, a, I can't not. Sometimes I actually feel like a really intense sense of mortification when I go back like hours later and see there was a typo and I did not yeah. fix it immediately. So it's just the, the second I see it fix it i I don't care if i i don't care if it takes me seven text messages to fix it that typo is getting fixed and i think too with our with what we do as a profession we are automatically put in that category of you better 
have the correct grammar, correct punctuation, correct spelling, everything. And so I am very cognizant when I send texts. I reread them. I'm so psycho. Like I reread them going, okay, you have the correct form of the word there and your, well, and you put a period thing. in it. When it was obviously a typo or an autocorrect situation, it's less embarrassing. But when it's something that could lead to the impression that I thought that that was the correct use of yes. the word your versus your or there, there, and there, then I feel a truly deep responsibility to let the other person know that I did not think that that was the correct word there. See, it, it's interesting because you're you're younger and, and I would have understood if you were more like laissez-faire about it because sometimes I think it's a generational thing. I'm, I'm you know, uh, strict not just about the words but the punctuation. I'm making sure the periods are right, the question marks are right, that I'm using, you know, a colon or a semicolon the right way just because I still think in like, like I'm typing on a typewriter, I, I think about things that way. And I know that in text, obviously – there's no capitalization, you know, in, in, you know, younger generations, a lot of times, much less punctuation. And and so using correct words is no big deal. But I feel compelled when I have especially voice text because and you do voice text a lot. I do because it's it's I think it's convenient and, and I don't have to sit here and type with both thumbs or whatever it is. But when I voice text, it misses a lot of words. Like I'll tell you one and I'm going to try it right now as we're on here. I'm going to say um, and I'm sending this to Sarah. I'm going to say, Sarah, um, I've got a Vosat for tonight's nine o'clock. And so. All right. I'm going to stop it there. I'm going to send it to you. You're going to see what it says. So a Vosat, for those who don't know, a V-O-S-O-T. It's a voiceover or a video. Yeah, no, voiceover, right? Voiceover yep. video. Is that what V-O is? And, and Sat, sound on tape. So V-O in the news business means video, essentially. Sat means sound on tape, a sound bite. A Vosat is where we don't have a self-contained pre-recorded package. We have an anchor reading a story. There's some video that plays, and then there's a sound bite. So I say Vosat, and it came out as what, Sarah? Faucet, F O S S E T T, like a name, capitalized F O S S E T T. I've got a faucet for tonight's nine o'clock. Now, Sarah reads that, and in the context of I've got a faucet for tonight's nine o'clock, she can probably <laughs> deduce yeah. that I meant Vosat. Yeah. But I am, I feel compelled to explain it, correct it, and that means yes. now I have to stop the convenience of voice texting, <laughs> grab yeah. my phone, type it correctly, the whole thing. Pull over the car to the side. I've done that. I've had to yeah. pull over the car to the side of the road to correct the text quickly because yeah. I was concerned that it said the wrong thing. I don't know why I feel so compelled to do that. This just reminds me of a former coworker I had who would always do voice to text, but like in the middle of the newsroom for very personal text <laughs> messages. No, no, so no. I, there's probably a whole different question to that that goes to like voice to text etiquette. And phone the test etiquette. results came back and it wasn't <laughs> crabs. No, it was. I, I distinctly remember he had gotten into an argument with one of our anchors and he was sending a text to our news director who was literally in the office like six feet behind him. And all of a sudden we just hear Dave. Comma, I will not apologize to Josh. <laughs> and he's just very loudly voicing this in the middle of the newsroom. Yeah. So that's a flex. <laughs> yes, that is, that is a flex. I mean, and it was it was it was right there, but the, it it brought it brought about some some phone etiquette. Now, to his credit, he seems like the kind of guy where if he saw a typo, he would correct it immediately. That just reminded me of something, though. Do you guys ever now when you're leaving voicemails, do you end up saying things like? Hey, this is Brian, period. 
I'd like to go to the blog. Like, do you say that in a I voicemail don't and then realize? I voice to text oh, often, so I don't. Oh, my gosh. Voice to text is all I do. And I do it with emails, too. Like, I'll send a work email and I'm like, Angelica, comma, uh, the most wanted script for this weekend is looking good or whatever. But, yeah, and then I'll end up talking to them in person. I'm like, hello, Angelica, exclamation point. <laughs> I have done that in voicemail so many times. And I think, it, I mean, I think it's funny unless it's a professional message. Right. And you're like, this is Brian Polson uh, from the Fox 6 Investigators, comma. You know, oh, man. No, I I almost accidentally say because I'm so used to like talking to my husband on the phone. I have definitely accidentally told people that I love them at the end of a voicemail or a phone call before. But I feel like we've all been there. My phone is autocorrected. I've autocorrected it so many times to to uh, news terminology like Vosad and package and other stuff that now when I say it, it actually picks it up or like one of our one of my colleagues his initials are BG, and I call him BG, and that's how I refer to him in text. And now I say BG, and it doesn't – it gives me actual capital B, capital G. So my phone is at least smart enough to do that. It doesn't give you, like, B-E-E-G-E? No, like, like the you know, BGs. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, t- no. I was just I was just about to, like, try some BG singing right there, and I, I thought better of it. I thought about lyrics, and I was like, mm, we're going to pause that Yeah, no, that that's one. just a little too high even even for me. More on the autocorrect stuff. Or no, just the, the texting stuff. My husband, we were in a group text with other people, and I had texted, and it was, like, a couple hours later. And my husband came home, and he said something to the effect of, like, oh, I saw your message in that, in that group chat. You know you used the wrong your, right? I immediately panicked, <laughs> grabbed my phone, and I was like, what? And I see that I did, and he was like, got you, because he knew that it would, like, just grind at me until I looked. I was like, we have to stop the conversation. I'll be right back. I'm going to go grab my phone. (laughs) So that's how much it uh, gets in my own brain. The worst feeling, though, is when you go to do the correction, and you do, like, an asterisk, and then you miscorrect it, and... And then you, you, or you realize it was one of several mistakes, and now you've added like three asterisk <laughs> yeah. texts, and somebody's yeah. like, "Just stop!" And yeah. You're pinging my phone, and I'm in a meeting. I, you know, right? I get it. I get it. <laughs> that was a good one. I mean, I, you know, of course you think it's a good one. You came up with it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so we've broke. We've done two new things on Open Record this week. We broke news, and I got to submit the Open Record question. There so. we go. Happy New Year. Happy New Year on January thirteenth. <laughs> No, okay, we're not going back to that. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate for Fox 6 News, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, comma, that is fox6investigators <laughs> at fox.com. As always, thank you to all the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record if you have not done that already. You can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. With that, I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, and for Brian Polson, we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.